According to an article in the Lexington Herald Leader newspaper dated January 15, 1989, there was a film crew that had showed up in West Palm Beach, Florida to do some uh, film footage, and it was going to involve uh, one of these uh, very uh, hectic car scenes ending in some explosions, as you sometimes see in movies. This was before CGI, where they could just do it on the computer. This is when they actually blew up cars, right? And there were actual crashes and so forth. And so uh, making sure that they had everything in place, they had to go to the different houses and make sure that the, the neighbors were okay with this. They knocked on the door of this one home and said, you know, you, your, your home here is just the perfect backdrop for where the, the collision will take place, but, you know, we just need you to know that there may be some collateral damage to your property uh, in this way. And they're like, oh, you know, our home's going to be in a movie? Yeah, you know. Oh, that's exciting. Hey, whatever you need to do, that's fine. You know, this is their chance for glory to have their home in a cameo appearance in this film. And so the, the film begins shooting and, you know, several takes, destroying several vehicles just to get this right. And as was said, and of course all the paperwork had been signed by the people that lived on this street, uh, there was some damage uh, to, the, to the lawn, to the shrubbery, to the, the mailbox, and, and maybe even perhaps a little bit of melted vinyl siding on the home. And it was a little surprising that, you know, this was going rather smoothly without too many complaints from anybody, when all of a sudden there was a, a person that, that lived up the block a little ways that came down and said, listen, I've got someone on the phone that needs to talk to you. They're talking to the director of the film. He says, well, we're kind of in the middle of something here. No, you really need to talk to them. He said, okay. So he gets on the phone. He's like, who am I speaking with? He says, he says, are you shooting a film in front of, and he gives the house address for it. And he says, yeah, we're right here right now. We've had several takes. He says, listen, you need to stop right now. He says, no, sir, you don't understand. We've, we've already gotten permission from all the homeowners. He says, no. He says, that home is a rental. The tenant gave you permission. I'm the owner. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's easy to be generous with something that isn't yours, Right. Well, we've been talking on this concept of stewardship, the idea of what we have in our holding, in our hands. And this isn't limited just to what's in our bank accounts, our net worth. It's really all about our substance because whether it's a home, cars, clothes, whatever it is, we know that these items are really not there just because of only our hard work. We have to recognize as children of God that it is his good hand upon us that has brought these things into our life. It's made it possible. And God wants us to maintain a thought process that says, well, all of this that I have under my supervision isn't really mine though the world would say it's mine, I'm really just a steward of it. It belongs to God. He's made it possible, but I need to be a caretaker of what 
has been and put into my hands. And so today in the last two Sundays, we've been looking at this passage in 2 Corinthians 8, talking about the concept of what it means to be a steward of our substance, what God has put into our hands. We saw, first of all, the example through this other church in Macedonia, these believers in Macedonia, and how Paul said, you know, look at what's going on in their lives, how they're doing it, and how that's important for us to be able to have blueprints and role models and how to do it right. Then we talked about God doesn't expect us just to come up with our giving out of ourselves, that God's grace enables us. And so not only the example of giving, but also the enablement of giving. Today, I want to bring this three-part series to a close as we talk about the effects of grace giving. The effects of grace giving from the passage that Brother Bishman read for us this morning. What are these wonderful effects? What results, what happens when we are engaged, we have the right mind, we say, okay, God, I'm on board. I see that you enablement. I've seen the example biblically of how I'm supposed to do it. But it would certainly give me that little extra oomph if I could see, okay, what do I have to anticipate? What do I have to look forward to as I yield myself and say, Lord, I'm I'm going to operate as a Christian with this mindset of stewardship. I'm going to operate on the basis of giving by grace. So I just want to give three thoughts, three principles from the text this morning. The first one's found in verse 11, and it is this. The first effect is the giving objective will be obtained. Now, this may sound a little bit obvious, but sometimes I have found that the obvious can get a little muted and forgotten, and it's good to really focus on it. Plus, that's exactly what Paul is telling us here When he says in verse 11, he says, Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. Well, what is the it? Well, if we remember the previous text, it's about the giving of great, giving by grace to the offering that they're receiving for brothers and sisters in Christ in a different church, in a different location in the town of Jerusalem. And and these believers in Corinth, these Corinthians, they had already started the process But obviously, it had kind of lapsed. And so, he's coming back and saying, when he uses this phrase, perform the doing, the meaning is to complete the doing. We might say, it's time to wrap it up. It's time to get to the the finished spot here. Later in the same verse, you'll see the word performance. So perform that there may be a performance is what he's saying here. In other words, do the grace giving. Pray about this. Obey God's leading in your life. Be a cheerful giver, not reluctantly. Get engaged in this. And by the performance, he means so it can be completed. In other words, put it this way, do it so it can get done. Do it so it can get done. When we think about in our normal day-to-day living, there's a lot of things that we kind of procrastinate about, right? I mean, let's just be honest. I'm not going to ask you to 
raise hands or give personal examples. But it's easy for us to think about uh, chores that might need to be done. And you can walk outside and you can say, wow, and I, this was just one recent for me in the last couple of weeks. It's February because the blade never reached down there to the brown dormant grass, but I had to mow down the weeds in my, in my, in my yard. But I could sit in there and I'm like, yep, <clears throat> grass needs mowed. Need to get to that one of these days, you know. But the point is, how is the grass going to be mowed unless I actually mow it? Right. And you're like, oh, it's not my favorite thing. To, actually, I do enjoy mowing the grass as a typical thing. It's that, that first one. And this one, again, knowing that it wasn't going to look nice and all green when I was done, just wouldn't look so horrible. How, let's bring it into the house. You go into the kitchen. Maybe it was a late night with guests over, and you're like, you know, let's just go to bed. We'll worry about the kitchen later. And you, you walk into this scene, right? And you're like, wow, I was just hoping that those dishes would be done magically, right? And you want that nice empty sink. You want the, everything to be taken care of. But the only way those dishes are going to be clean is if they get washed, right? So this is a very common principle that we understand. And so most people would realize, while there are some, there are some ministry needs, probably everybody would agree, yeah, churches and ministries and missionaries and evangelists, they need money. Uh, they need to be able to live just like anyone else does. Uh, churches have to pay power bills, and on we would go. They might say, yeah, we would, we would like to see that happen. We'd like to see a, a missionary able to go to France or a missionary able to go to Togo, West Africa, or, or wherever. That's a great thing. I hope that happens. But just like the grass isn't going to get mowed unless you start pushing the mower, we have to be involved in our grace giving in order for these particular objectives to be reached. It's implied that there was a target. And we don't know that whether Paul had a dollar, a monetary amount, saying we need to raise X number of dollars. He doesn't indicate that that's the situation, although some people who have written on this chapter suggest that he did because it's like, well, hey, we need to get to the end of this offering. We need to wrap it up. And a lot of times we think that way. In other words, I need to take this much money back. Well, maybe he didn't know exactly how much money the Jerusalem church would need exactly. It's obvious that Corinth isn't the only church that's contributing because they had the Macedonians doing this also, so there may have been others too. But what we, we do know at least was he's trying to tell them, listen, you've had this open offering sitting there, uh, but it's time to say, okay, it's time to tabulate it all up, write out the check, and send it on, if you would. Uh, I didn't write checks back then, but you get the idea. Why, why would they be lagging behind? Well, maybe it's like, well, we don't want to give just what we've got. Maybe they were a little embarrassed about how the participation was. Maybe they realized that some people had said, well, I plan to give. Well, so what Paul is saying is, hey, 
it, it's, it's time to get involved. It's time to do it. The, the need is there. The need is present. The people, I'm, I'm heading back that way, need to be able to help these people in Jerusalem. You know, this isn't the only place where this idea of performance or bringing things to a completion happens in the Bible. So sometimes when you think, well, this is about material things. But you know, the same concept happens in our spiritual lives. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul's talking about the growth of Christians, specifically their growth in love. And it's something that he's saying isn't that you do as a believer, it's something God does in you. He says it this way, being confident of this very thing. In other words, Paul says, I'm not on the fence on this point of theology. It's very settled in my mind. That he, referring to God, which hath begun a good work in you, probably referring to the salvation. Hey, he justified you. He redeemed you. He's made you his child. He's adopted you. So that was the start. You're like a newborn babe at this point. And so just as God was very faithful to begin that good work in you, guess what else he'll do? He will what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So we need to recognize that while God puts people in our lives to help encourage us and edify us and admonish us in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, God says, I take primary responsibility for that growth. I'm doing that work in your life. And that's a very important thing for us to realize, that God has some goals for us, spiritually speaking. Now, we're not all going to look exactly alike, but the point is, it says, this goes on until Jesus returns, until the day of Jesus Christ. The little song that we used to sing as kids, He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. Anybody remember that little song? Some of you people do, okay? It's a wonderful, simple song about progressive sanctification in our life, what God is doing. And while that's sometimes difficult for us to do, we need to realize, well, I'm glad that God doesn't stop and just put up the yellow tape that says under construction and then he abandons me, you know? I've been to a few websites where you go to it and it says under construction. I come back three months later, it still says under construction. And it's just like, really? I'm like, that doesn't bode well, it doesn't put a great image out there for this company uh, that said they need to get this done, right? We all understand this. So as you are glad that God doesn't set you aside in his love project, right? I mean, I'm glad that God's doing that. So we shouldn't set aside our stewardship project that he's given to us. He's called us to that. Now, that can look a little differently as far as our participation. It could be regular giving, whether that's weekly, monthly, or whatever, to support the church, the local church and its ministries. And we talked about previously how the Lord does want us, as we see in the book of Acts, to give primarily through our church support, uh, give to this week's offering so the routine bills can be paid. You know, if... And, and fortunately, I can say, someone once said, was this hard for you to preach on this topic? I'm like, no, it's not. There's two reasons why this isn't hard for me to preach on. Number one, this church already gets this, okay? We have 
a very giving church. And number two, it's in God's Word. I shouldn't pull back because I realize all this is helpful for us. And it would be doing a disservice to the body of Christ if I skipped over something like this. But you imagine a church where all of a sudden the people, the congregation comes in the next week and is like, wow, you know, we having a candlelight service in here, Pastor? All these candles in here, and it's kind of warm in here. You know, can we get the air conditioning on? Says, well, they turned the electric off. Why? We couldn't pay our bill. Why could we pay our You see where I'm going. You know, it's like, wow, someone ought to give, right? Well, we all are called to that stewardship. It could be regular giving. It could be sporadic giving to a love offering. We have these periodically. For instance, we might have a missionary come through. We might be taking, as we are right now, a special love offering for the people in Syria and Turkey that have faced the devastation of the earthquake there and are in need of help. And we have a a good sound agency that we are already partnering with that makes sure the monies get into the right hands once it gets there. That's always a concern. And so you might say, hey, honey, let's give a little extra this Sunday. We're going to help out this need. Let's pray about this. It could be a lump sum gift to help a large ministry project, such as our, our camp up the road here at the Anchorage Camp. Maybe they need to buy a, a new boat to use in their summer program, and it's a big expense. And someone says, you know what, you know, let, let's, as a church, let's take that on, and let's help them out in that way. And so it needs to be a little bit larger gift. Maybe the Lord lays on different people's hearts. There's so many different facets and ways it happens. But here in verse 10, at the end of verse 10, in, in verse, uh, chapter 8, he says, So there may be a performance also of that which ye have. And the idea here is it's out of what you possess. And then he goes on to talk about how they were forward uh, in the next verse and also a readiness, which really have the same meaning here. The reminder is that they are declaring one's desire to help get the job done. But that is pointless to say, yeah, I'm behind it, if the gift never gets given. And you know, it's, it's very sad to see uh, an uncompleted project. Uh, if you've ever gotten a puzzle my dad lo- uh, loves to put together puzzles, and he would go to often the North Myrtle Beach Public Library, and you can actually check out puzzles there. Or maybe you go to a yard sale, and people are selling puzzles. And you, know, and you go, and you, 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 you get this puzzle, and you, you go to put it all together, and you get done, and there's this one piece that's missing. And it's just like, oh, it just kills you, Right? Because you're like, I can't complete it. There's a piece missing. And that same feeling is the way we should feel when it's talking about the ministry of the Lord. And maybe the missing piece is missing because of our procrastination, our hesitancy. And so we need to be reminded that the, the, the part of the effect of grace giving is, hey, we get the job done. The objective gets to be obtained. Everyone loves that when that happens. Here's a second principle we can learn from this text. It's found in verses 12 and 13. And this is very, very important. 
The sacrifice will be out of your substance. Out of your substance. We probably all have heard messages or encountered people or listened to something on the television where there is a push or there is an emphasis about giving. And maybe it's done with, with great animation and great pageantry and people are emotionally charged up in these things. And it's, and it's all done on the idea of, you know, just, you know, trust God by faith and, and give for, you know, set a certain amount of money. And even if you don't have it, you know, pray. And if you trust God and you give that amount, you know, God will bless you for that. We often refer to this kind of false emphasis as prosperity gospel. And that is something that the Bible is against. It doesn't teach that. God does not ask us to give what He has not actually provided, folks. If God is going to even challenge you by faith to give something, then He's going to provide it for you. Remember the account in the Gospels where Jesus is with His disciples and they go to the town of Canaan, there's a wedding feast. Now, a wedding feast is not just a one-hour one event where you have a ceremony and then a reception. This sometimes lasted several days. And so the hosting family, they needed to make sure they had plenty of food and beverage. Well, what happens is there was a miscalculation and they run out of wine. Well, this was unthinkable. It was a great embarrassment to the family. Well, Jesus' mother happens to be there, probably maybe a friend of the hostess that's there. And she realizes the horrible problem, the horrible predicament. And so she goes to Jesus and basically kind of says to him, you know, can you, can you help out? He's like, it's not my time. He knew that she was looking for a miracle. And she just turns to the servants and says, listen, whatever he tells you to do, do it. And, and Jesus decides to do it. Uh, obviously, this is part of his sovereign will from the beginning. He's not just being, you know, knuckled under by his mom in this way. But here's the point. The end of the story is that there is an abundance of wine, and not just any old wine. It's the highest quality of wine. But how did that happen? How did that last puzzle piece get put in? How did that objective get obtained? Well, Jesus said, hey, there's some, there's some pots here. Now, the pots were there for purification. It was a ceremonial cleansing purpose. And he tells the servants, fill them up with water. I'm sure they're scratching their head. They're thinking this is a waste of time, whatever. But they obey. They do what he says because Mary said, do what he says. And what happens? The water turns to what, folks? The wine. Now, here's the point. Did they have that wine on the premises? They did not have wine. They needed wine, but they did have something. They had pots and water. And God was able to take that substance and turn it into something else. So does God still do that today? Hey, every time that my wife and I give in the offering, and let's say we're we're supporting, it's saying it's going to missions. It's amazing how that 
$50, whatever, gets changed from a piece of paper currency to someone around the world hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow, that's like water being turned to wine. Now, we understand it's not miraculous in the sense of supernatural, but God didn't ask me necessarily to go and preach in Cambodia But he asked, what do I have? What is my substance? Will I give that so that it can be transformed into that? And sometimes people will come and say, Pastor, you know, I have this health issue. I have this limitation. I have this scheduling problem. I would love to be part of this, but I can't. I'm like, listen, everybody can do something. You can serve in some other way. But, you know, we can all give of our substance to help make good news club happen in the public schools once a week, to help missionaries go, to help us build our next building so that we can reach out and continue to reach more families in our community with the gospel. The point is that we're not asked for what we don't have. Acceptable giving is based on what a man hath, verse 12 tells us, not on what he hath not. I don't think it's right to go to someone and say, listen, you need to go and take out a loan and borrow money so you can give to this church project. That's giving out of what you don't have, isn't it? And the Bible's like, that's not what God asks you to do. Now, he might ask you to say, pray and say, Lord, I don't have it, but I'd love to be able to give it. Lord, if you'll provide it to me, I would love to turn around and just be that conduit of grace. And there are countless stories where people will say, you know, this happened, that happened, this money came in I wasn't expecting, and praise the Lord, I got to be part of that giving. How do you define what a man hath? As I was reading this passage, I was just kind of focused on that little phrase, you know, a man hath. You know, the Pharisees had this problem. They acted real pious outwardly. But Jesus nailed them several times, didn't he? And there's one position where he comes to them and says, listen, you guys, you want to act like you're all super spiritual. He says, but a, a, a number of you have elderly parents and relatives, and they need to be taken care of. But you're not taking care of them, and you're like, well, we don't have the resources. And what they were doing was they were setting aside a certain amount of funds, and they labeled it as Corban, C-O-R-B-A-N, literally meaning it's devoted unto God. Well, I can't touch that. That's, that's devoted unto God. It's almost like modern day putting it in an offshore account somewhere. Now, people knew they had it, but it was like, well, you can't expect them to use that. That's devoted unto God. The disingenuousness of it was that often after that loved one passed away, if somehow it magically became uncorbin and came back into their own coffers. And so Jesus calls them on the carpet for this because they're like saying, well, we, we can't, we don't have the resources. It's not in our ability. And so I asked, I remember praying through this myself one time and I'm thinking, well, what is it that I have? Well, one thing would definitely be cash in my bank accounts if I'm thinking about grace giving. 
But, you know, if I was reluctant, and hopefully we're not reluctant to give, someone could say, well, I don't, ha I don't have much cash in my bank accounts. Well, maybe it's because we have it all wrapped up into properties or homes or some other kind of tangible property in that way. I, I heard recently about this person who is considered a millionaire and yet paid very little taxes because all of his money wasn't in the form of normal income. It was all invested into properties and buildings and businesses and things like that. Very wealthy man, you know, and so that's what you look at is net worth. Money in retirement accounts. Someone recently said to me, you know, it's like, well, you know, I remember when I retired, I, I had given all my life and, and the money that was in retirement accounts, technically I'd already tithed on that. That was, that was money that was already tithed on. But you know what? The Lord impressed it upon my heart and I'm just going to go ahead and keep on giving of grace out of that money and the Lord's taking care of us. The point is this, we need to be very honest with ourselves when we talk about what a man hath. We don't want to be guilty of the Pharisees of playing a little shell game, saying, well, I would give more, but I don't have that much. God's not asking for any of us to be impoverished, though, is He? These and more things could be considered when determining giving out of what we have. Remember in Acts chapter 4? Uh, there's the, again, the Jerusalem church. There's some needs. And it seems the Holy Spirit is just placing this on people's heart. Nobody's pressuring anybody. No one's saying, you know, fill out a pledge card and turn it in. And I hear stories like this. I've heard people say, I've been turned off the church because the church I used to go, they had to fill out these pledge cards. And if you didn't keep that pledge, they came knocking at your door and saying, you're behind in your pledge. Yeah, I don't think that that's at all what the Bible is teaching us to do. First of all, your commitment needs to be between you and God. And yet we do see that people jumped in and saying, hey, there's a need, let's help. So in Acts 4, it talks about the people, the believers in the church that were taking houses and lands, and they were of their own free will, not being pressured, choosing to sell these things, liquidating some of their assets. It doesn't imply that this was like their only house or their only land, but maybe they had substance and they were like, hey, you know, I see some needs here and this is nice and everything, but God's just impressed it upon my heart. So people are bringing these things. The only condemnation in all this going on is a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who they sell their property and they bring it, but they conspire to let everybody believe that they're giving the full amount, and in fact, they're not. They want everybody, everybody to believe that they're more generous than they are. So the Bible is not condemning the idea of sacrificial giving. It actually exemplifies it. But we do need to guard our heart motive in why we're doing it, don't we, folks? And so in all this, we need to remind ourselves, you know, God's not saying, hey, you know, keep up with everybody else. You know, you, you, maybe somehow you become aware that someone was extra generous and you're like, well, I want to be as generous as they are. And so you might take out a loan or something like that. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the exact opposite of that, which brings to the third point, And that is, 
that the exchange will create an equilibrium of resources. Paul was explaining that the Corinthian believers currently had an abundance, if you look at the first part of verse 14, but an equality that now at this time your abundance may be a supply for their want. And so it simply means that they had something to give. It didn't mean that they were grossly wealthy. It just means you folks have something that you can give and these people have a need. It would help out where there was a deficit at this time. He's also explaining that later the roles could end up being reversed. Like right now, you Corinthians, your church has some substance, but the Jerusalem church has some real financial needs. And so look at verse 15, or or the end of verse 14 rather, that their abundance also may be a supply for your want, that there may be an equality. Their abundance? Wait a minute, I thought they had a lack. He's talking about future tense here, isn't he? He says, the day may come where you might be hurting for whatever reason. Maybe a famine hits, or maybe oppression comes to your area, and now they have been blessed, and now God's going to impress upon them. So think about that. The Corinthians might need a supply of their lack. And out of that abundance, it'll come. We all understand how this cycle works, right? I'll give you one example. A farmer drinks a glass of milk. I mean, he just enjoys this cold glass of milk that came from a what? Came from a cow, to which he previously had to go out in the barn and feed what? Had to give it the hay, which previously he had been in the field planting and and, uh, fertilizing and harvesting so that he could give it to the cow. But you know what? He needed to drink that glass of milk so he had the power, the energy, to go out and work in his field. And so the cycle goes all the way around again, right? And say, why didn't everybody just keep what they have? Well, the farmer wouldn't get to enjoy a glass of milk. What a shame, right? And we could use any illustration like that, couldn't we? The point is, God says, you know, I could have given by my sovereign will, I could have given an equality to Jerusalem and to Corinth. And you can say, hey, look at our bank accounts. They're exactly the same. But you know what God knows? Then you would have missed the blessing of being able to give by grace. And that's what it's really all about. You get to participate in that. You get to drink that glass of milk, so to speak. Yeah, there's things that happen in the cycle to bring that around. In verse 15, the last verse that we're considering here, it's actually taken from the Old Testament. If you have a cross-reverence Bible or a study Bible, you might see Exodus 16, 18. What's going on in Exodus 16? Well, they're in the wilderness. They don't have food. And God says, I'm going to take care of you. You have lack. But God says, I have abundance. And so God sends down that abundance in the form of something that none of us have ever seen and we just wonder at. It's called manna. Manna is just simply the Hebrew word that is, what is it? Because when it came, they didn't know what it was. When they get a little fed up with it, 
pun intended, they say, our soul loatheth this light bread. So it must have had some sort of, of properties that made it kind of breadish. But he's talking here about the gathering in this verse. He that had gathered much had nothing over, and he that had gathered little had no lack. Here's the way God designed the whole manna process to work. It would come down in the early morning. They'd come out to gather it up. There might be that person that's like, you know what? I'm a little concerned. I'm a little concerned that what if God forgets us tomorrow? We have time. Let's, let's gather up a second pot full of manna, and then that way we'll have it tomorrow. And you know what would happen when they get up tomorrow? They're going to see there is manna on the ground because God is a faithful God. But if they go to that pot out of curiosity, the Bible tells us what they found was there were worms crawling all through it. Where did those worms come from, right? God sent them. God sovereignly put them there. And it would happen every single time. It didn't matter what they would do to it if they were trying to test God. You know, I wonder if we hide it. I wonder if we mix it into something else. Whatever. It didn't matter. God wanted them to trust them for that day, their daily bread. Sounds suspiciously like a prayer Jesus taught us, right? And what is the, what is the point of that? He says, listen, don't get so bent out of shape about, well, I, I might need more. Well, what am I going to do? If, hey, listen, God supplied what you've got right now that might be considered and construed as abundance. If the Lord lays it on your heart and guides you by faith to give something out of that abundance that you've been kind of white-knuckling onto and thinking, but what if I have an emergency a year from now? Is the same God not able to reign the, the manna of supply upon you in that time? And if you clutch on to it, is he not able to take that away from you through other means? I've heard testimony, I remember when we lived up in Chicago, a friend of mine up there said, you know, I used to really struggle with this idea of grace giving, and I would just have all these excuses for God and why I didn't give. And, and, and then finally... You know, I just said, Lord, I release it. I'm going to give what you, you guide me to give. He said, there was such a release in my heart. But I began to notice things. As I looked back during that, quote, stingy time, was the word he used, of my life, he said, I realized I was having car problems, appliance problems, unusual things, health issues in my family. He said, and then once I started to do this, all of a sudden I realized that the money is there, I, my expenses didn't seem to be as high. And of course, God warned the Israelites about this very concept where they were holding their money in their bags, and God says, I can put holes in those bags. I can put holes in those bags. And that's what he would say, how does God put holes in your bag? In other words, he siphons it off by other predicaments that he brings into your life. You know, if God wants it, he can take it, right? It's so much better for us to get the joy out of engaging in the process by grace and trusting Him. Sometimes we think, oh, it would be so nice to be wealthy. 
well, I'm, I'm not so sure that it would be great to be wealthy. Honestly, just going out every day and, and getting exactly what you need can be very less stressful if you believe that God is loving and caring and supplies your need, just like the Israelites gathering the manna. Wise old Solomon, and he was a wealthy guy, wasn't he? And yet he, he wrote Proverbs, which taught us about life, teach us about life. And so really, if you remember, he writes a book called Ecclesiastes, and part of Ecclesiastes talk about the vanity of wealth. And I love what he writes in Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9. It's like a prayer. He says, remove far from me vanity and lies. You know, the idea of just wastefulness in life and deceitfulness. Because, I mean, life, we're taught so many lies, especially if you spend any time in social media or watching advertisements. It's just one lie after another. But it sounds so truthful. People buy into it. You know, if like if, if I could reach critical mass, you know, and I could quit my job, I would be happy. But he says this, give me neither poverty, he says, well, I'm there on that one, but he doesn't stop, nor what? Riches. By the way, let me just pause here. Have you heard stories of people that have won lotteries and then their life has become a disaster? We've all heard those stories. So the prayer is, Lord, don't give me Opposite ends of the spectrum would be my desire. I, I don't want to be impoverished, but, but I don't want an abundance of wealth either. Instead, feed me with food convenient for me. In other words, Lord, you know what I need. I'd be so happy. In other words, I, I, bring me to the place where I'm, I'm happy with just what you say I need to have. He says, because if I get really rich, that's what he means by when he says, lest I be full, I might be prone to deny you. I don't need God. I mean, I've got my barns filled and overflowing. I'm going to tear down those barns, build greater barns, take my ease. Wait, that's the man that God said, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Right. There is a tendency. Now, can you be wealthy and be righteous? Absolutely. He said, I thought that, that money was the root of all evil. No, the Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil. Abraham was a very wealthy man, and he was called the friend of God. Job was a wealthy man, and yet God pointed him out as his righteous uh, ambassador on planet Earth at that time. And on and on we could go. There is a right way. But there shouldn't be an aspiring for wealth, for wealth's sake, and, and that we can consume it upon our own lust. We don't want to come to the place where we're saying, well, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal or take the name of my God in vain, come to the other end of the spectrum. We'd say, well, this sounds like it's, extolling the virtues of middle-class economy. You could almost take it that way. But the point is this, that gives the idea of a dollar amount. And you know what? And in this middle ground that Proverbs is talking about might look different 
even in the country of the United States of America, from one family to another because of how God might be using one person different than another. The size of the family, the, the needs that they have. Someone might have health issues. You go over to a third world country in the 1040 windows, we call it, like India, and probably someone who is receiving public assistance in the United States of America would be considered a wealthy person over there. So it's all relative. So we need to be careful about defining the lines of wealth and poverty because that's never done in the Bible. You won't say, here's the poverty level. Our country does that. Say, oh, I just looked it up. I'm living below the poverty level, right? It really requires honest assessment of each person of their own situation. I think one way to look at it is, do you have discretionary money? Pretty much everybody does. And you've probably all seen people that would claim, you know, oh, I don't have money to do this, but then you, you see them buy something else that makes you question. I'm not sure that's a wise purchase if you're claiming you have needs and you're begging for help from other people. We see those inconsistencies that bother us sometimes. But, but really... Rich, being rich, means you just have discretionary money. doesn't mean that, you know, you're reaching a chart, you know, tops of the chart somehow. That's why when you read something like 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19, you don't want to stop and say, well, this doesn't apply to me. I dare say this probably applies to every single one of us in this room when it talks about who is rich in this world. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, as the pastor of the church, to charge them. In other words, Timothy, I want you to admonish your flock in this way. Charge them that are rich in this world, they have goods, that they, first of all, be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. Because riches are uncertain. You never know what's going to happen. But instead, in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. That's where it comes from. That's where we started, right? It's all God's. It came from Him. I didn't make it happen. If I have an illusion of pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, that's what it is. It's an illusion. God is the one that has given these things. And what am I then supposed to do? What is He telling them that, okay, I have abundance. I have discretionary money. What should I do? That they do good, that they be rich in good works ready to distribute, willing to communicate. By communicate, he means be generous and ready to share, not necessarily giving away all of their wealth. But hey, can we help out in this situation? Can we be a blessing here? Laying up in a store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. I want to be very careful. Some would misinterpret the end of this verse and say, wow, that almost sounds like the idea of sacramental salvation. In other words, if I'm generous in the offering plate, I can earn a spot in heaven. And it does kind of sound like that, doesn't it? You know, you do all this, communicate, give, time to come, and you'll lay ho- you might lay hold on eternal life. But what that end is actually saying is that they may know how to embrace 
that which is part of our now eternal life. In other words, when you got saved, if you know Christ, you're your Savior. When did your eternal life begin? At the moment that you became a child of God. You entered into you. And he that believeth on me, the Bible doesn't say will have eternal life. He that believeth on me hath eternal life. You have eternal life. It's present tense. And, and so why he's phrasing it this way, I believe, is to say, listen, you can imagine what it's going to be like in heaven someday, but that eternal life that you're imagining in heaven, you're into that eternal life right now on earth. You're not walking streets of gold. You're not sitting down with David and Abraham having conversations, but you're still in that flow, that stream of eternal life. So start living and thinking and having that mindset right now. Lay hold on that. Same thing when he tells his followers, seek those things which are above, right? And so it is we will understand in our lives when it comes to grace giving that if we find discretionary money in our lives, rather than trying to you know, hide it or to excuse it, let's say, Lord, it's yours. You've brought it into my life. You can bring more into my life. Are you laying it upon my heart to use this in some way? What a great effect that would be to see this, what I have, transformed into something for gospel ministry purposes. And so I challenge you today, will you purposely, will you prayerfully, will you persistently enter into a practice of grace-giving? as a steward of what God has put in your hands? Will you open yourself up to be a blessed conduit that God can work through and channel through? God has so many blessed lessons for you and for me. That's His ambition. May we purpose to give by His grace. Father in heaven, thank You for Your Word, for Your truth. Help us to take to heart the teaching that Your Word has given to us. Not that we feel imposed upon. Not that we feel uneased. But Lord, that we see this as an invitation to really experience what it means to, to give and to learn Your goodness of participating in the whole process of what You're trying to accomplish here on planet Earth. Lord, that we are even currently right now in our eternal life. And so, Lord, help us to have our affections set on things above, not on things of this earth. Lord, enable our strength. Help us to remember that we give because you are the ultimate giver. You love this world in its unredeemed state so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, that they will receive Christ, turn from their sin, and rely on Christ alone. But Lord, for any believer that is struggling, Lord, may they see the wonderful effects that you have in store as we yield and begin to practice grace-giving in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.